and we as science communicators are the filter and we have a responsibility to to stop the woo from getting through So hello, listeners. Welcome to our first podcast episode. We're your hosts, Miranda Stahn and Pooja Bhakti. And at the end of August, we held our very first virtual panel titled How I Found My Job in Science Communication, a Choose Your Own Adventure panel. I love this. This featured science communicators from across Canada. We had Kimberly Gerling, the Interim Executive Director at Evidence for Democracy, Michael Robin, who's a science writer, and Sunita Ligalau, a producer and host of the podcast Music for PhDs. We had fantastic conversations about their career journeys, the future of SciComm, and so much more. This is going to be such a great first episode. Yeah, it was interesting to hear all the creative and diverse backgrounds that each panelist brought to their science communications career. So today we will be listening to the first part of this conversation. So this panel is split into two parts, with part two being released next week. We hope you enjoy the adventure. So to begin, I'm Miranda. I'm in Edmonton. I am a bachelor and master's of science graduate from the University of Alberta. I've kind of dabbled in and out of SciComm through my whole career. And um, I'm presently about to start a new role for Genome Alberta. And I will be one of your panel moderators. Uh, Pooja, would you like to go next? Uh, Yeah, so my name is Pooja Putti. I have my bachelor's in physiology and neuroscience from the University of British Columbia. And I also have a diploma in human resource management from the British Columbia Institute of Technology. And my purpose of being here today is I love combining my two fields and providing career resources for those in the field of science. So uh, we're really excited uh, to have everybody here today and for our panelists. So Kimberly, we'll start with you. If you could introduce yourself. My name's Kimberly Grilling. Um, So I have a PhD in neuroscience, actually also from UBC. Um, But I transitioned out of science when I finished my PhD and now work as the interim executive director at a nonprofit organization called Evidence for Democracy, um, where I work on sort of bridging the gap between science and science policy. Um, So I think we're going to speak all about it. But uh, but yeah, so I'm coming at this from a sort of science communication in a policy space. Hi, I'm Michael Robin. I'm coming to you from sunny Saskatoon. I'm a science writer and communication strategist here, um, born and raised on a farm about an hour north of Saskatoon. Uh, most spent most of my career in Western Canada and some in Calgary. Um, I started out uh, in journalism, that's what my formal training is. Uh, worked at some newspapers, owned a newspaper for a while, uh, decided that I wanted to focus on science, which is my real passion. Uh, there was no such job, so I started up, um, made my own job as a consultant and eventually got hired by one of my better clients, and I worked at the University of Saskatchewan for the better part of 10 years and a couple of different funding agencies as well. Uh, Right now, I'm consulting again. Uh, I write on a lot of different topics, uh, primarily in uh, agriculture, biotechnology, uh, more recently in uh, uh, artificial intelligence, um, uh, 
drones is another one that's come up, and also the industrial internet of things, uh, among a great many other things. So I guess what I'm here today is to kind of talk about uh, some of that variety that's available for uh, for people that uh, that want to start a career in uh, in science communications. So, uh, hi, I'm I'm Sunita. I'm uh, coming at you from Calgary. Um, and uh, yeah, my background is I uh, have a bachelor's in environmental science, which is science for people who can't make up their mind. Um, mine was mainly uh, biology and chemistry focus. I worked in environmental consulting uh, and engineering consulting for about 10 years, mainly in a project management uh, kind of role, which ended up blending into communication um, and sort of business management. Um, I uh, then did a pivot. Uh, so I took the um, Beakerhead Science Communication Program. Um, and from there, I ended up uh, creating a podcast. I have an arts background as well. Uh, and so I had did a podcast on basically the art and science of classical music. I very recently uh, started a role as the digital programs manager for the Telespark Science Center in Calgary. So that's very new. Um, I may not be able to answer too many questions about that. That's quite recent. So to begin, can you tell us a bit about, and you've all alluded to this, but your journey into science communications? Uh, cool. So I, I'll start. So, um, so I mentioned that I am a scientist by training. So I was doing a PhD in neuroscience but my PhD was really focused on drug discovery and drug development for nerd generation. And the reason I did that was because I was really interested in making medicines that helped people. And so what I wanted was to like make a real contribution to medicine. But what I found out when I was actually doing my research is that I was really frustrated about how little connection it felt that there was between the lab scientists who were doing things like medical technology development and actually getting those technologies out to the people who need them. Um, whether that means through accessible medicines or through good policies that are made, you know, informed by science. And so during my PhD, I thought, you know, I want to do more of that. So I got really involved in a lot of initiatives that were relating to um, access to essential medicine and harm reduction and drug policy. I was living in Vancouver, where obviously um, harm reduction was a really big issue. And I realized that that's really where I wanted to work, is at that interface between science and getting science out to the people. Um, and so I started doing a lot of science communication when I was in my PhD. Um, a lot of that was relating to policy. Um, I started doing some volunteer work with a couple of organizations that were working on topics that I really cared about, like the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. Um, but I didn't really know where I could actually sort of work in that space. Um, so when I finished my PhD, I did a fellowship program called the Canadian, the MyTax Canadian Science Policy Fellowship, which was about bringing scientists into the federal government to actually work on big science policy issues. Um, and so that actually led me to become a science policy analyst in the government. So I actually worked at National Defense for a little while, looking at ethics of human enhancement. I worked with um, innovation and science for a little while on science funding. And so it really like shifted me away from science and into science policy and communicating science, not to necessarily always the public, but to decision makers and policymakers. Um, and now I work at Evidence for Democracy, which is an organization that is um, focused on getting science and evidence into the hands of decision makers. So we do 
um, issue-based advocacy. We do education and training for scientists in the community on things like how to communicate your science to policymakers, you know, how to better bridge those connections between science and evidence. And, um, and we also do research on evidence-based decision-making. So my journey, I mean, I, I'm definitely a science communicator, but I'm probably a bit of a different science communicator in, the, in terms of the rest of the folks on the panel. So, I mean, I'm happy to speak a little bit to science communication in the context of policy and connecting those bridges between science, the public, and policymakers. As I mentioned before, I, I was born and raised on a farm about an hour north of here and really was interested in science right from the get-go. I was out there fooling around in the puddles and watching the bugs and putting uh, various bits of uh, lake weed under the microscope that uh, we had around the house. Um, in grade three, they used to call me the mad scientist. I always had my... Uh, my nose in a book and uh, talking about such things. Um, but anyway, I started out actually in a very manual job as a shipper receiver and uh, decided to get a proper career going, uh, moved to Calgary, took journalism there, uh, started out in journalism and actually worked uh, uh, first, actually I started out in PR first, uh, then went to journalism uh, at a weekly newspaper for a while, then I owned part of a weekly newspaper for a while, which is actually still extant. It's uh, Northern Pride up in Meadow Lake. Uh, then I moved back to Saskatoon here once again and decided, uh, gosh, you know, I've been bouncing around. What the heck do I really want to do? And the one constant in my life has been a, a love of science, uh, of all things science, really. Um, so I decided to say, okay, can I make a job in this? And turns out there was a thing at that time called a science writer, but there weren't that many of them around and certainly none in Saskatoon. Uh, so I started a consultancy and started pitching myself to various uh, science organizations, including the University of Saskatchewan, uh, who became one of my best clients. Um, and uh, they ended up actually hiring me and I worked there as a, in the, uh, as a research communications officers for about 10 years. I uh, worked for Saskatchewan Health Research Foundation as a communications manager as well. And all during that time as well, it wasn't just writing, but it was also uh, who are you writing for? Uh, what do you want people to, to do once they've read what you've written? You know, that sort of stuff. So that's where the communication strategy came in. Uh, more lately, uh, I've actually been doing some presentations on science communications itself. Um, and in particular, how people process information like why do some people oppose fluoridization in water or vaccines for their kids or nuclear power or GMOs or why do they like organic why do they like natural there's a lot of psychology in there and so I do a lot of uh, I don't do a lot of those but I've done a, a few of those presentations as well it's a personal interest as well um, in terms of uh, uh, so that's the strategy I, I do that for my clients on that um, and I think that's kind of it. I'll be doing some, I look for opportunities to do that as well through the Science Writers Communicators of Canada, uh, both as a board member and also to uh, give back a little bit in terms of mentoring some new writers as well through our uh, uh, bloggers initiative, uh, which uh, I've really enjoyed doing. And actually, we've actually recruited a couple more editors to help with that. So we should have some more cap capabilities so our writers can hear back from us a little bit, a little, a little bit more quickly. Um, and also in terms of, uh, I mentioned about looking for opportunities to get out there. I've, I've uh, pres presented at our local uh, Café Scientifique, again, on science communications. And also I'll be doing a presentation for uh, Global Biotech Week uh, here in Saskatoon coming up in September. Um, so that's kind of what I do. I do a lot of writing, some, uh, some research, uh, and some uh, presentations, that sort of thing.
Um, I'm glad you started at the beginning, Michael. That gives me, <laughs> I'll do the same. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, um, my parents are immigrants on both sides and I had high grades. So that meant that I was supposed to be a doctor. Uh, it didn't take too long in my bio 101 class to figure out that that wasn't going to happen. Um, and so I was already in the bio stream. I took a bunch of classes. Um, I kind of joke that environmental science is for people who can't make up their minds, but really there are a lot of different streams. If you think about it in the terms of the science of how humans interact with their environment, like that's bio, chem, air, atmosphere, there's um, lots, of, uh, lots of ways to, to come at that. So that was my undergrad. Uh, and then I worked in, like I said, uh, consulting for uh, quite a few years. Um, and because I wasn't a field biologist, I uh, wasn't in, yeah, I wasn't doing that uh, field work, but I was managing a lot of it. Um, and a lot of that ended up being communication. So um, talking to clients, talking to government, talking to different kinds of scientists, air scientists versus wildlife biologists versus fishery specialists. I did have to know uh, sort of a little bit about everything, although I wasn't really an expert per se, I had to be able to sort of communicate um, well enough. And uh, to be honest, I think I, <laughs> I don't think I really knew what science communication was at first, like that term to me, uh, I probably only discovered it a few years ago. Um, and it's kind of a funny story about that. Actually, I found it because I found a job posting in New Zealand because I wanted to move to New Zealand. <laughs> and so I had found uh, a job posting for a science communicator. And I started kind of digging into what that might look like. Um, and I, I do think, you know, it is interesting. I'm glad Kimberly, you're on the panel because I, I think when I first came across sort of the term in the field, to me, it really said journalism. It was really people who wanted to write for Nat Geo or be on BBC Earth or something like that. But there really are quite a few kind of avenues and ways to approach communicating what can be very technical information into something meaningful that has meaning and resonance to someone's life the way it is. Um, so getting it out of that ivory tower. So that is, uh, when I started researching it, that's kind of how I ended up um, deciding to, to try and find somewhere I could inject myself in it. Because I have a science background, but I was always a very creative kid. I was always painting and drawing. Um, I had always kind of had those two streams of my life fairly separate, but I certainly always found it most interesting when artwork had a science element maybe, or, you know, the science of creativity and kind of, I, I always found, uh, personally, I was really interested in projects that kind of had that intersection between arts and science. Uh, and I love the acronym STEAM, so uh, science, technology, engineering, arts, uh, and math. And so um, when I decided to make the podcast, so I thought that interviewing composers uh, would be a good podcast. Uh, but I also thought that I, I've, my background in science is not really around uh, brains, but I am very interested in how uh, music affects people, uh, the science of music, that's a huge topic. Um, when I started the podcast, I was very lucky to engage a friend of mine whose PhD research did, uh, was around how people, how infants kind of 
learn to process music and learn to process language and, and those things. So I was able to create this thing that had an art element and a science element. Awesome. So the HR person in me really wants to know what kind of training and development is involved in your career? Well, um, okay. So that's a really interesting question, I think, for my career, because I definitely have a very unusual training for someone who's working in a policy space. So, I mean, I knew that I really wanted to work in policy um, from the beginning, you know, once I started doing my PhD, but I don't know that it's a really common pathway for a lot of scientists who are interested in that space. So usually if someone wants to work in government policy or sort of work at that interface between science and policy, most people who work in that space actually don't have a science background, even if they're working in science policy. Um, so, I mean, a lot of those people have economic backgrounds or political science backgrounds. Um, so you definitely don't need, you know, a PhD to work as a policy analyst. Um, but I do think that there are more and more opportunities that are coming up for people who do have a science background who want to work in a policy space. So I participated in a fellowship program called the MyTax Canadian Science Policy Fellowship, um, which is a Canadian program about bringing scientists into policy spaces. Um, I know there's a number of people who are in the States as well. And actually that fellowship program was modeled after an American program um, called the AAAS um, Science, I think it's called just the Science Policy Fellowship. But um, it's been around for a really long time, and it's been a great model for this in Canada, um, where it's about bringing scientists into the American, I think it's not only just the government, I think some of them work in state departments and um, other aspects of this sort of policy space in the, in the United States. But there's some really cool programs for scientists who are interested in working in policy. Um, and then sort of brought more broadly for scientists who are interested in learning more about science communication. So I've been seeing, I haven't answered them in the chat yet, but I've been seeing a number of questions about um, you know, how to bring your science into the policy space. So even if you're not necessarily working as a science communicator in a policy space, one of the tools that we do really well at my organization, Evidence for Democracy, is we have a whole set of training tools and programs for the science community or people who are passionate about science who want to learn both how policy works and how to more effectively communicate their science to people like policymakers. So we have a number of webinars, we have some toolkits on things like science policy 101. So, you know, what does the policy process look like? Um, how do decision makers find and use evidence? I actually did a big study last year where we talked to Canadian parliamentarians about how they find evidence and figure out how, you know, what their needs are in terms of getting science and using science. We have tools on things like how to find and create meetings with your elected officials, how to prepare for those meetings, how to communicate your science in the form of something like a briefing note. Um, and how to sort of communicate politically in a way that's still not partisan. So um, if you're interested in seeing those tools, we have a lot of them as well. So you definitely don't need to be someone who's working in the space to be a science communicator for policy, um, but there are a lot of cool new training programs for people who are interested in that. And then I guess like more broadly, I would say check out the Canadian Science Policy Center, um, check out the Science Writers and Communicators of Canada. They have a lot of really cool science to policy work. Okay. Well, I'd say uh, for me personally, uh, the training and development is how to write and write well. Uh, to me in this, uh, in science communication, science writing in particular, and science communication in general, uh, strong writing skills are table stakes. You'll need them 
everywhere. Uh, whether you're writing an article, whether you're writing a tweet to go along with that article, whether you're writing promotional copy to go on to uh, radio or a video script, uh, all of those you will need uh, strong writing skills. Even before you get to the product, you'll need strong writing skills to be able to make a good convincing case in that funding proposal that you need to put together. Uh, so that's kind of table stakes. So I would say first off, uh, make sure that you work on the writing skills. And when I talk about writing skills, I'm a bit biased here because uh, I do come from a journalism background. But the idea with, uh, with writing is that you should be able to clearly and concisely express yourself. And what I'm always trying to do, I tell people, try to engage your audience and even better, if you can get them excited about what you're writing about, even better. And if that's kind of the, the bottom that you're doing with this, this is what you should be, be doing. In terms of some of the ancillary skills, some of them are technical. Uh, of course, uh, some of the new ones that are coming out, the various social media and needing to be able to write in, varia, in, in various other uh, uh, media, I guess, uh, that you need to be able to have that kind of flexibility. Uh, you also need to, we're talking about, uh, I got a, had a question come up uh, about uh, uh, where do I find clients? Well, you find clients uh, with another set of skills and that's networking. Like get out there, I guess we don't shake hands anymore, but say hi a lot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, hook up with people, uh, look for ways to get your, your, uh, your name out there. Uh, network. Uh, put up presentations. Some of the presentations that I do are specifically for that reason is uh, uh, one to because they're I, I enjoy doing them, of course, but I also want to get my name out there. Uh, and I also want to have a chance to pass around some business cards, uh, if that's still a thing after this viral contaminated time that we live in. <laughs> but, uh, I'll, I'll, I guess we'll I guess we'll finally learn how to uh, how to how to uh, share business cards more easily with our smartphones now. Um, some of the other skills that uh, that you would have, I guess some of the ancillary skills that you should have is you should be familiar with uh, the other professionals that you work with. So if I'm working with uh, a film producer, I need to be able to write that script in a way that they, they are familiar with. Uh, if, I'm, uh, if I know that I, I, I need to hire a photographer, I need to know what I'm trying to say with that image uh, or with a graphic designer. I know what I want, what tone that I need to have with a, uh, uh, with a particular, particular publication uh, so I can guide them. Uh, so we're all pulling in the same direction. So I guess, uh, I, I don't know if it's a skill per se, but I think you have to be, be familiar enough with your um, uh, complementary professionals, I guess. And then, of course, right at the root of this thing, uh, you really do need to know how to read a scientific paper and you need to know how to assess science uh, so that you're saying, okay, this does not make sense at all. There's a lot of woo out there. And we as science communicators are the filter. And we have a responsibility to, to stop the woo from getting through. The original question was what skills you need? Uh, training and development that's involved in your career. None. You don't need anything to do, do a podcast. Um, uh, yeah, podcasting is like having a very complicated blog. Anyone can do it. And so there, now I'm going to balance that by saying it's a lot of work. And the hours that go into your favorite podcast 
it's probably several people's full-time jobs. So um, podcasting is very accessible in that you need minimal equipment to do it. There are a lot of open source software uh, available. There's a lot of YouTube tutorials uh, that are out there. Um, I think I made my podcast for like probably $40 worth of investment. <laughs> like I borrowed a mic from someone and um, it's, uh, it's, it's very much within everyone's reach. Um, but it's, that being said, it's very, very difficult to make a, a podcast that, um, that like Michael said, is concise and communicate something. Um, I think a lot of people have the idea that they can record conversations with their friends, throw it up on the internet and make a bunch of money from a podcast. That is not the case. Um, so I did see a question pop up about making money from podcasts. It's difficult. Even if you get sponsorships, it's probably in the couple hundred bucks range. So no, it's not really something that will pay your rent, um, but it's a really wonderful passion project. And one thing that I would say for people who are starting their career or who are considering a pivot or a shift is that a passion project is a really wonderful way to give yourself something on your resume that you don't have to rely on someone else to give you. So a podcast will probably, it will take hours and hours and hours of work to create your narrative, have it be something structured with a start, a middle, an end, like a good story. Uh, it will take a lot of work to learn the skills of just mastering the software, editing things, making your voice sound not terrible on the playback. Um, it will take all of the work of uh, social media and um, marketing and you know this is all like if this is your part passion project unless you have a lot of like really nice friends who are skilled in those areas those are things that you are doing yourself and which you probably you know are doing also if you're if you're a freelance communicator um, and uh, and you know you're kind of a one-man one-person show recommend so I I think I had my idea for the podcast for a good year before I actually went and made it. And I did take the Beakerhead SciComp course. Uh, and it's a fairly intensive, like 10 day program. You do make a podcast episode in like 48 hours. Um, so it's really great to be able to see someone do that. And I think that gave me the confidence to be like, I could do that. It would take me a lot longer, but I'm sure that I could repeat those steps. Um, but that being said, there's a ton of uh, there's a ton of hosting companies that want you to host your podcast with them. So they'll, they'll give you lots of tutorials. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I think two points that kind of came out of this conversation is you can never undervalue networking. Uh, my job, I'm kind of a professional network from working in recruitment to now in science business. Um, and where connections take you, you have no idea what job or opportunity or collaboration. Um, and then passion projects, are important and same thing you have no idea where they're going to take you um, can I jump in on something you said there Miranda very yeah, quickly for, for sure. sure so connections and networking is absolutely very critical but uh, no one's gonna hire you because you met them for two minutes at a conference yes. so when we say networking what we really mean is kind of developing loose extended friendships with people that you like and respect and just kind of want to stay in touch with uh, because maybe they're doing something or maybe you're doing something um, but yeah, less of the, like more, think of it as having a really wide circle of, of friends. And something that I'd like to jump in on, uh, being in business and in HR networking is what we heard from since day one. 
And if you're someone like me that's really introverted and shy, it can be very overwhelming. And I think the best piece of advice that I got from somebody is just start off with just start off with one person, even just a professor. If you really like a professor in one of your courses, see if you can add them on LinkedIn, see if you can go to their office hours. They're called informational interviews and they're one of the most useful things because one, you gain information and two, they see your face, they see your name. And that's a really good way to build connections. And again, just start with one person and slowly build up because it can be overwhelming, especially if you're someone like me that's really shy and really introverted. Yeah, um, but, people love to talk about themselves. Like, no, yeah. one, no one will say no to an opportunity to brag. Right. <laughs> I'd like to, I'd like to add to that too, uh, in that it's not just in-person networking we do. Like, for example, make sure that you have a, a good uh, snippet, your your elevator speech that should be on your LinkedIn. Um, you can post stuff on your LinkedIn as well. Uh, go ahead and do that. Like if uh, one of the questions was, you know, how do I go from general assignment reporter to a science specialist? Well, one of the things is that you're going to have to build up some some cred in science reporting. Uh, so some of the issues that you uh, that are kind of near and dear to your heart, uh, write a blog for your own LinkedIn stream. Uh, you know, start start doing that sort of thing. Uh, so people start to uh, when they look at your at your profile they say wow this this person is pretty good at, uh, at science communication so are positions in SciComm posted or do you have to create them yourself I feel like I'm the wrong person to answer this question because um, <laughs> um, I don't necessarily work in a traditional SciComm field um, in my field I would say that yes they are posted but I also would agree with everyone in what they're talking about in that you create your own opportunities by building connections. So, I mean, I would say that if there's something that you're really passionate about, even if you don't necessarily have all of the specific criteria. So, I mean, a policy job is a really, really great example of this. A lot of people, a lot of scientists specifically don't necessarily see themselves having a spot in a policy team because they don't necessarily have a background in economics. So if you were to go on a government policy website, for example, you'd see tons of opportunities to work in science policy, but all of them are going to say, well, what's your background in economics or political science or stats? But I think that like valuing your skills as a person who understands science or a person who's passionate about science or someone who's a strong science communicator, making your niche in a field where scientists don't necessarily have a niche is something that is really important right now. And there's, I mean, we're living in a time of COVID where you know, having science advice involved in our decision-making processes is so important. And so I think that even if it isn't a job that you necessarily see yourself in because it isn't like your training background, putting yourself into boxes that you don't necessarily fit in is I think really important to bridge into this field. A bit of both. Uh, as I mentioned, when I first uh, got started in this racket about uh, mid to early to mid 90s, uh, there were no science communications jobs per se uh, in Saskatoon. Uh, there were some public relations jobs that did a little bit of stuff at the university, but that's about it. Uh, so I basically had to create my own science uh, science communications job, uh, which worked for a while until somebody decided they wanted to scoop me up, which uh, comes to the next point, is that I believe now, and, and I, I, 
I hope I'm not being too Pollyanna, Pollyanna about this, but I've noticed that there's an awful lot more uh, science communications jobs out there. Uh, like, for example, we've got our science center down in Regina. They're looking for a new coordinator down there. There's a, a fairly entry-level position that I'd mentioned uh, in just with the, uh, the presenters here today over at the University of Saskatchewan at the Global Institute for Water Security. Somebody that they're looking for a new communications coordinator there. Uh, so there are a lot more uh, jobs in science communications, but make sure that you look beyond the usual suspects. There's the universities, there's the research councils, but there's also the people where that, that fund all of this. So all those funding agencies need, uh, they all have publications that, that need copy, they need content, they need expertise that, uh, that knows, uh, uh, know how to use all of the social media platforms and which audiences uh, actually respond to those social media platforms. So all of that expertise uh, that you can offer, uh, look for, the matches where you can find that uh, there uh, don't just say okay I want to be a science communicator like when I first started out I, I want to be a science writer okay great I'm gonna go write for the Globe and Mail or McLean's well that you know everybody wants to do that and so your chances are fairly small but uh, Start looking around, look, you know, kick under the rocks, uh, talk to a lot of people, uh, talk to the scientists, uh, even science itself, actually, the magazine I mean here, uh, they actually have a, a front section uh, that is uh, devoted to lay language articles on the science issues of the day. Uh, so yeah, just, you know, be creative, uh, uh, really look around. And yes, there are, there are jobs out there and probably uh, quite a bit, quite a few more science communications jobs than ever have been. Uh, yeah, I would agree a bit of both. Um, I feel like my, uh, my, I got a job that was posted on like a job website. Um, but when I was, when I had kind of decided that I wanted to make this pivot and I was looking, um, I, ha I have to say it felt like I wasn't seeing anything labeled SciComm. Um, a lot of what I came up to with my Boolean search terms was things that were like technical writing, uh, you know, for software manuals and uh, and that wasn't really what I wanted to do um, but I would say if you sort of like um, pull back to a kind of the bird's eye view science communication is uh, communicating technical information to people who don't have that same background there's a lot of places where that happens um, in government I think would be a, a big one there's areas where it probably isn't called a science communication job uh, but that there is that element to it, uh, you know, writing funding grants uh, or, you know, even like even business to business proposals. If you're like, I come from an engineering consulting background. So there is a lot of sort of communicating the, the technical know-how of what you want to, to do or approach about this bridge rebuild or something like that um, and translating it into a concise document. So a little bit of both, but I would say that if you are starting your job search right now on monster.ca or something, um, you'd have to be pretty, pretty creative and maybe look more for environments that you'd like to work, groups that you'd like to, to work for or with, um, and, and try to, to find some way to make a, a place there. It may not be called science communication specifically. I think a lot of people here are maybe considering switching careers into SciComm and they've been 
invested in other careers and they want to go into this. Uh, if you have any advice on that and also combating ageism. Um, I mean, I, I guess I, I don't know if I can speak very much to combating ageism. I mean, I, I think it's something that we should all try and do better at is just to be more accepting of people from all different kinds of backgrounds. But I mean, I did switch careers. I went right from science into a policy job. And I think, I guess, what, are we, what would be some of my tips? I mean, I guess for, for one, don't have expectations that your career is gonna look exactly the same. So one of the things, so I, I came in through this fellowship program and then since then I've actually acted as an adjudicator for the program for a number of years. And one of the things that I always have to tell people who are trying to come into a policy space or, or a communication space or a different kind of space from a science background is that it's, it's different than what it is like doing science. And so you can't expect that you're gonna be doing exactly the same thing um, or that your day is going to look exactly the same. And I think that you have to be okay with some of the like different paces of the career you're moving into. So for example, one of the challenges that I had moving from a science job into more of a policy job was the, the timing and the pace of like the work. So, you know, the, sometimes my communication deadlines were in like two days. So I would be given a task and then like, okay, you have to come up with a briefing note on this topic that you don't know anything about in two days. And as a scientist, I was like, this is nuts. Like I've never had to communicate science in a way that's like so fast and so um, such, a, such a general audience. So even if you have an idea in your head of what communicating science looks like and what you want it to look like in a new field, get that out of your head. I also think it's important too, um, and I, I would be interested to hear from the other panelists because in a policy space, um, a lot of people who want to go into policy want to do it because they want to make sure that the science that they did in their PhD or in their training is communicated effectively. But the reality is that a lot of the time you're going to be working on a really broad field. And so it's not necessarily going to be that you're going to be working in exactly your field, the one that you did all your training in, and you're going to be working, communicating that to a policy audience. A lot of the time working as a policy specialist and communicating that science to policymakers means you have to be comfortable sort of dipping your finger into a lot of different kinds of ponds. And I would assume it's the same in a lot of other SciComm worlds. And that's something that I get a lot of pushback from my community from, because they're like, no, I really only want to work on, you know, climate, or I only want to work on, um, you know, my, my specific field. But I think that adjusting your perspective of what your day-to-day -day might look like is really important if you're thinking about making a big shift. So we're talking about ageism, I guess I'm the guy to, to address that, I suppose. Eh? <laughs> um, I guess uh, how, to, how to combat ageism. Uh, I'm, you know, I've been at this for, for a while and, uh, and that sort of thing. So I, you do fall back a certain amount on your reputation. People do uh, contact me because they know me and they've known me for many years and they know the quality of my work. Uh, for people that don't know me, I would suggest that uh, the, one of the things that I've done is I, I try to hang around with people quite a bit younger than me uh, professionally. Uh, they are kind of the up-and-coming folks. Uh, they have connections that, uh, uh, you know, my connections are aging with me and, and yours will too, if, uh, depending on where you are in your, your career. So I would recommend that you do uh, keep cultivating uh, those contacts that are younger than you, hang around with them and heck, even socialize with them. I'm in an acro yoga group and uh, I think I'm probably older than the rest of the participants by a good 20 years. <laughs> but, uh, but they're a great bunch of folks. Uh, they are just a, an amazing source of, uh, of inspiration and new ideas and just being familiar with what 
uh, the younger generation, what matters to them? What issues are, are top of mind for people that are 20 and 30 years younger than you? Uh, you need to be aware of that if you want to stay relevant. Um, so, uh, so other than that, in terms of how to change, you, you, can, you can only do so much to change people's uh, uh, thoughts on what you're capable of. But I would say that uh, make sure your work is out there, make sure it's fresh, make, your, make sure your reputation is not known just by people in your own age group, but uh, people much, much younger than you as well. So. Uh, I, I think a lot of people, um, from my experience and from some of my friends, uh, they, uh, they, they graduate, they hit the working world, it is not what they expected, and they go back to grad school. And I don't necessarily recommend that route because um, what, what I found myself in a situation of was that I, I couldn't specialize. I was interested in so many things, such a broad range of topics that to specialize further seemed sort of counterintuitive. Like would I know that this was kind of the right topic for me? Um, and so science communication is great because that's going broader. Um, as Kimberly was saying, and Michael, you, you'll, touch a lot of different subjects. You'll go from maybe a specialty position to more of a, that bird's eye view. Um, but when you are uh, sort of doing a pivot or doing a career change, um, you know, later, uh, post-graduation, post uh, there's, there's some hesitancy because I think people can feel like, oh, I've invested all this time in my career thus far. Um, I have kind of reached this level. Am I going to be starting from scratch again, starting from the bottom? That, that's valid. You, you are starting over. You are starting in a new field and you are learning new skills. And so it's always good. I think no matter where you are in your career, and even if you decide to stay in your career lane, it's to always have that beginner mindset because our world is changing super fast. And the things that you know, you are going to have to process new information, work under different working conditions, deal with the pandemic, like change is fairly constant. Thank you so much, you guys. That's some really great insight. And something that I just like to add that kind of addresses this and also networking is the importance that if you want to be more involved in SciComm is volunteering. There is a lot of organizations all over the country and the world dedicated to SciComm. Uh, I can speak for Vancouver and for parts of Canada. There's Science Slam Canada, which runs and hosts events. There's Nerd Night Vancouver, and I believe Nerd Night has other chapters in other areas. A lot of these organizations are looking for volunteers. A lot of these organizations are looking for presenters. So if you are interested in SciComm and you want to practice your skills, and the great thing that I think we're learning from this panel is that science communication comes in a lot of different forms. You know, we have podcasts, we have writing, we have policy. I rap about, about science, but it works. I'm just waiting for Pooja's album to drop. <laughs> <laughs> you will let us know, right? I will, I will. <laughs> in reference to that, Pooja's famous for rapping about neuroscience. So uh, after this, if you need a good afternoon pick-me-up, I recommend YouTubing that. Um, oh my gosh, this, this particular section of conversation was so great. Uh, for one, I hate golf, so I'm glad Acra Yoga is a new source of networking. <laughs> um, so people are wondering if they should maybe take additional courses in writing or if the university level science communication programs are valid or if they can pick up those skills themselves. Um, so panel, do you wanna give your feedback on that? 
making that transition, I think it depends on where you're coming from. Um, journalists and probably videographers and radio people and that sort of thing, they're used to talking uh, lay language to lay people. So it's not that big a jump if they uh, can learn how to do the science translation. They have to learn the language of science, uh, which is a bit of, uh, to me, I guess maybe I'm a bit biased because that's the way that I went. Um, I've worked with uh, scientists for probably, you know, the last uh, 15 years or so. And when they try to write, it's really difficult to get them not to write like a scientist. Uh, they get very uncomfortable using uh, the non-precise language that lay people have to have in order to understand anything at all. Uh, I've had things that I've written and then they've turned it back into science speak and I said, nobody's going to be able to understand this. Um, but I have done things like I've said that, okay, well, can you run it through a few readability indices here? Uh, and okay, I've run it through the flesh Kincaid or the gunning fog index and somebody would have to have a PhD to be able to understand what you've just written here. Is that, is that who you're writing for? Uh, so you kind of have to lead them through it sometime, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So they, so depending on where you're coming from, the skill set uh, can be more or less difficult. Uh, you know, there's a certain amount of innate talent. But I think on the bottom line, I would say, come to it with some humility. Don't assume that you can write. Don't assume that you can put together a good video. Uh, ask the people who know. Look for the people whose work you admire and, and ask them. Uh, pick apart their work. Why do I like this? Uh, why is it so effective? Why did this speak to me? Uh, and, and like I say, approach it with humility and, uh, and I think you'll do fine. I would also add to that is that I think that, well, I totally agree that that science communication training courses are really awesome. And I, I'm super happy to see more of them coming up at universities and a part of training programs, because I think that they can be super valuable and definitely take them. Um, I think it really depends on the type of communication you want to do. And honestly, a lot of it just takes practice. So, I mean, in my field, I, I feel like I was a pretty decent science communicator for a general audience and to the public, because I did a lot of that when I was in my PhD. Um, a lot of my work in the PhD required me actually working with stakeholders. And so I, I was pretty comfortable communicating my science to a public audience. But then when I moved into a policy space, I realized that my science communication skills had to change completely. So writing briefing notes, for example, is a totally different approach. And communicating science for politicians is a totally different approach. Writing an op-ed is a completely different style of writing. So, you know, even though I had been working as a policy analyst for a couple of years, when I started my current job at E4D, when I started writing for media and writing sort of compelling media pieces, I realized I had to learn how to communicate science all over again. And so um, in terms of training to get you to that point, some of it is just practice. I mean, I feel like anytime you move into a new career, you're going to have to just kind of have that learning curve of learning how to communicate your, your science for a new audience. Um, and for a different purpose. And so I think, Michael, you're right in saying that just being hum hum like a little bit humble and, and learning um, along the way and, and recognizing that you're not always going to be great at it is a good starting point. But then there's also a lot of really good tools. So I mean, again, to like sort of boost my own organization, I gave a, a webinar recently that you can download for free or watch on YouTube on how to write briefing notes. So if it's something that you're interested in, in doing political advocacy, um, I'm happy to sort of share that and you can check those out for free. 
Um, and then I would say like, you know, if you're interested in writing in particular ways for particular audiences, seek out training opportunities for that and, and practice. Um, you, you don't need to be trained scientists to write an op-ed or to write for media um, or write a blog for an organization that you care about. Practice, just take some time and practice. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of, of training courses, like I mentioned it a few times, I did take the Beaker Head course and it was, it made a huge difference for me. Um, as an individual, I, I, you know, mileage may vary kind of thing. Um, and I haven't done any of the other training programs, um, so I can't really speak to them. But I, I think I already said this, like you, anyone can have a podcast. It's fairly, um, it's fairly accessible. Uh, I am, I was going to add, though, uh, one thing from the previous question about career pivots, which I failed to mention, but also it's, uh, I wanted to say, too, if you're changing, you're looking at training or, or doing a table flip of some kind, um, you do take all of the skills that you previously learned. So if you had been doing science communication in one particular arena and then you, you switch, like Kimberly said, you will learn a whole bunch of new skills, but you keep the skills that you had uh, with you. So for me, one of the things is I had a, quite a bit of experience in project management and um, it doesn't maybe seem related, but it is a skill that's uh, carried me through uh, uh, in, in particular on the podcast because I had so many moving parts. Um, project management is basically just general life skills that's good to have. Um, but when you do take on a passion project, you are going to bring all the things that you learned from your previous iterations and your previous experience to bear on that project. and. Um, you know, some of that might be formal training from an education program, um, and a lot of it will probably just be your your life experiences. So uh, this is more for anybody that does freelancing, uh, uh, because you know freelancing is stressful. Is there a more sustainable way to pull it off, or is maybe getting a full time job the way to go? I guess if you have any comments to add on that. Yeah. Um, I've done both. Uh, it's definitely uh, a lot uh, less stressful financially uh, to have a full-time job. You know how many hours you got to put in. Uh, you know what the the money is going to look like at the end of the month, and you don't have to hustle for new clients all the time or or chase clients for uh, for uh, for money or whatever. Although thankfully uh, that's been very rare in my occurrence. Um, at the same time, you don't want to pick jobs that start pulling you into a direction that you don't necessarily want to go. That means you want it when you're starting out, uh, spend some time thinking about where you want to end up. Uh, what is your long-term goal? Uh, like, where do I want to be five years from now, 10 years from now? I eventually want to be a, a videographer with a YouTube channel as big as Veritasium. Okay, great. How do you get there? Well, uh, if you're taking a job that's working in science policy, maybe that's taking you too far offside. Uh, so try and try and make sure those full-time jobs move you towards that that uh, that long-term goal. The other part of it too is there's nothing precluding you when you have a full-time job uh, from actually pursuing those that long-term direction, even if that, that full-time job isn't quite, quite where you want to be. Uh, start doing a blog, start uh, you know presenting at the local uh, Café Scientifique or, or something like that, just to, to polish up those skills uh, uh, and learn the new skills that you think you're going to need to eventually become the new Veritasium. Uh, that, that would be my thinking is that uh, uh, particularly if you're just getting out of school, you probably need a good solid 
uh, dependable source of income uh, to pay off those student loans, if nothing else. Uh, so you want to get that dealt with. And uh, from there, uh, you kind of have to move on, on both fronts, uh, is what I would say. And that's it for me. So that's part one of the Choose Your Own Adventure panel discussion. We were so impressed with the questions we received from the people attending. However, the conversation doesn't end here, and we'll be releasing part two next week, so stay tuned. Be sure to let us know your thoughts on this week's episode by leaving a comment and by messaging us on social media. We are at Sign Networkers on Twitter and at Science Networkers on Instagram. We would love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week.